Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Hammer and Umpire Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Weber, and thank you very much for joining me on this 47th episode of the show. So we're closing in on big number 50. So I guess that's some kind of accomplishment. I don't know what, but it's something, right? I've got several segments for you, so hopefully something for everybody. I have a few listener emails and messages that I've gotten over the last uh, three weeks or so that I am um, going to address. I address everything that anybody sends me. If you you send me a message and you have a question, um, I usually don't send you back an email. I mean, I might send you a little quick thing or something. I don't answer it all in an email. I just will take care of it on the show. That's the way I like to do it, and it gives me um, fodder for segments, right? So I've got uh, Dave Emerling, is, uh, he's sending a, a few questions as well, and uh, Robert Fobian as well, and um, there might be somebody else too that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but we're talking about deep B or deep C position, we got a segment on that, some stuff with getting your bell rung in the Little League World Series, um, calling balls and strikes, we got a couple things on that, um, the whole concept of not calling what you don't see as well. Um, and, uh, how you might reward pitchers or not reward pitchers when calling balls and strikes. We got a few of those. Those are all from the listeners. I also, um, put in a little thing there cause it's camp time for many people. So a little camp checklist and some things to think about before you head to your camps or clinics out there. And, um, it was suggested to me that I kind of reinstate or, or add bad back in some of the, uh, the quizzes that I've done in the past. So I've got one of those on uh, Federation rules this time. Ten questions on that. See how you can do on that as you listen. I've been able to work a few games here in the fall and assign myself with a few uh, newer umpires to to try to see how they're doing and maybe help them out a little bit. So that's been good. Um, You know, it's getting near the end of the season here for us in the colder weather states to be able to work baseball games. Uh, but I've got uh, a few collegiate things um, lined up, and I worked some of my uh, travel ball tournaments, uh, a couple of those games last weekend as well. So one of the things I noticed, though, with um, the new umpires that I was working with is um, the the challenges that they can have working the bases in, um, you know, in two-man. And uh, sometimes, you know, guys think that, Working the bases, you know, uh, is kind of like a day off a little bit, I guess, or easier in some fashion. But being a very good base umpire is 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 challenging, especially in two man, because there's a lot you got to do and a lot you got to cover. Uh, for example, I had a play that I mean, we we pregamed everything, but you can't you can't pregame the whole mechanics book, okay? So we had nobody on base, ground ball to the left side, um, fielder threw it over there, wild throw. And, you know, gets past the first baseman toward the fence. I was working the plate. So if you're a first base umpire, you know your your responsibility is if that ball stays in play or not. So you've got to kind of move over there to be able to see that. And and if needed, signal, you know, your safe sign that it's still in play. So I was moving over there to do that. And, of course, the batter runner um, took off for second base. And he was going to make that easily because the ball got far enough away. But he decided to go for third base, which was going to be a little more challenging. And, of course, we all should know that that is the base umpire's responsibility, right? Well, my base umpire, a newer guy, uh, was very slow in reacting to this and getting over there. And he um, 
was maybe on the grass in front of where the second baseman would be playing by the time the throw came to third, which was the throw beat the runner, but it was high and the tag was slow. And from where I was standing over, you know, the 45 line on the grass toward the first base dugout, it looked like he beat the throw and he was under it, but that's not my call, right? But my base umpire, like, looks at me, all right? Now, this had happened after another incident earlier in the game, which I'll talk about momentarily. So, um, of course, you know, the head coach comes to me, and I'm like, that's my. That's not my call. That's my base umpire's call, so you should talk to him So, because I needed him to own this thing. And um, he ended up calling him safe, which I think he was, but it didn't look very good. But, man, we got to get our heads in the uh, mechanics manuals if uh, if we're a newer guy. You know, those are th- those are things that happen frequently. I mean, <laughs> ground ball, guy throws it past him, and the guy is running around the bases. That happens all the time, especially at lower levels where the baseball is not so good, right? So you got to know where you're going on that. But earlier in the game, in which I kind of helped him out, there was a play where there was a run on first, a ricochet off the pitcher, uh, shortstop comes up and gets it. There's no way he's going to be able to get the guy at first, and the guy's coming from first to second base. And he whips it over to the um, second baseman who's standing on the bag because the, the kid kind of took a turn, you know. He tries to back pick him, basically, at second base. And my base umpire, uh, he was in B and stuff, but he was completely anticipating the throw and didn't even look back at the play at second base. Never saw it. And it was pretty close, but he was safe. All right. So I'm, I was coming up the line like I should be for potential pull foot, swipe tag, that kind of stuff, right? But I'm looking at the ball like you should be doing just to see what's happening out there. And he looks at me, and I give him a little safe sign like that he's safe. And, of course, everybody else sees that. But this is like first or second inning, I think. So that wasn't good. I mean, keep your eyes on the ball. Forever keep your eye on the ball. That's the thing. The ball will take you to the play 99.9% of the time, right? Um, maybe 100%, but, you know, I, I guess there could be some situation where it doesn't. Um, so if you don't know, you got to pick up the ball and, 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 and know where that baseball is at all times because, you know, you're not really getting outs unless somebody's got the ball there, right? So that was a little tricky, uh, some things that we talked about. and um, But that's, you know, that's part of the learning process, right? You got to screw some things up and realize you don't ever want to screw those things up again to get better at it. And uh, working working the bases, like I say, is challenging. And then with uh, another umpire I was working with, uh, a good young umpire, he's around 20-ish or so. Uh, but, you know, there's some little things that we got to make sure we do. Like, you know, we got to have our our our... The ball, the cap we're using for our plate jobs, you got to have that the bill for it, man. You can't turn your hat backwards. You you got to make sure your mask is in good shape and not flopping around with a bunch of antennae coming out of it because of the uh, straps are too long. And I'll talk about that in a future segment and stuff. But uh, you know, there's a few things that I mean, he did a lot of things really well. I thought you know he did a nice job. But there's all these little things that sometimes you don't think about us veteran guys that we need to help the newer guys. And it's not always the young guys. I mean, it could be a guy that's, you know, 50 years old that decides he wants to umpire, which is great. I mean, go for it. But you still got to learn um, a lot of the nuances of things. So um, this is a time to do that and also a time to learn those things if you go to some camps and clinics, all right? So that's what I got. I've got a few segments set up for you, and I hope you enjoy them and uh, get you thinking about some umpiring as we enter the fall season. 
So sit back and relax and listen to another episode of the Hammer and Umpire Podcast. I'm sure we have a few listeners out there that are getting ready to attend a camp or a clinic this fall. Kudos to you guys for doing that because uh, that's what you got to do sometimes to improve your standing in your umpiring community, um, particularly to those that are making decisions on who gets game assignments, right? And of course, when you attend, your mechanics and your your safe outs and your balls and strikes are, are most important. But close second to that is your appearance. And uh, your uniform is, is what shows that. And so recently on umpatire.com, which is a good spot to go if you need some gear, I guess, um, they had a checklist for um, making your best impression at a camp. All right. And the first thing they talked about was to inspect your mask harness. Is the elastic stretched out? Are the sides wavy like bacon or something? Um, I do have to wrap it in electrical tape to keep it together. If you're saying yes to any of these things, then you should consider replacing your harness. And they're not usually too expensive, and you usually can find one that matches the brand that you have. Or you can go with some different ones, too. They usually will be a bit interchangeable. The other thing with your mask is, in, is number two, improving your mask appearance, okay? New harness or not, you should trim or tuck its nylon straps uh, to give your mask a clean and organized look. You don't want them flopping around there like you've got some antenna coming up out of your head. Um, I see a lot of umpires, especially newer umpires, do that. So make sure you make that look good. Um, you can even cut those straps if you need to because eventually you'll get a new harness anyway, right? The other thing is your caps, right? Clean your caps, number three. You can hand wash your umpire caps, of course, with mild soap and water. Or you can run them through the dishwasher or even uh, your washing machine. Um, but you usually need some kind of um, ball cap, you know, caddy type thing to put them in to keep them in the shape, right? Um, I have tossed ball caps or you know umpire caps in my uh, washing machine without something on it and they usually come out all right once they come out you let them air dry and you can kind of reform them into the shape that you want them to be in number four adjust your chest protector for a snug fit this is important anyway just for safety but um you know don't be the umpire that's constantly adjusting and lifting your your sagging chest protector right it's uh, going to draw some unnecessary attention uh, from the evaluators and um, also be a distraction to you. So adjust your straps so your umpire chest protector fits high and tight. That's the idea, right? Which means just over your collarbone. Tight means snug and unmovable against your body. So get that thing as tight as possible. If you're not uh, a big guy um, like me, I'm not a big guy, um, sometimes it's tough to get the thing tight. So you got to do what you got to do to make it as tight as possible. Number five, keep a clean waistline. All right, you can accomplish that. Um, clean tucked shirts that don't ride up out of your waist waistband. This provides like a slimming profile and makes you, you know, even if you're a little bit on the heavier side than you want to be, it'll look better. And the perception, of course, is professionalism. All right. Um, there are some products out there that can keep your shirts tucked in. You can look for those um, if you want to use those, if that's a, a challenge. Number six they've got is press your pants, right? Having a clean pressed uniform will grant the perception that, you know, you care and that you're sharp and, uh, and you care about what you're doing out there. 
creases that could cut an argumentative coach what um, is a goal for a lot of umpires you know they want um pant legs that you could see from the left field stands I, I don't know if you have to have that but if you can do that go for it man the button you know the better crease the better that you look all right and then finally number seven is clean and polish your shoes all right probably the number one thing you know they pulled umpires and many say that shoe shine was how they judged their peers uniforms more than anything else all right so it's okay to have those really shiny shoes out there. Be the envy of everybody else at the camp um, that you really know how to do that. And there's lots of products out there and ways to clean your shoes. You can find whatever you would like for that. So those are a few things to keep in mind uh, attending your umpire camps or clinics and uh, making sure your uniform looks good. Hopefully you guys are successful at those. And uh, if you do attend a camp or clinic, I'd love to hear about how it went. Just let me know. Another question about balls and strikes and calling balls and strikes. Um, another one from Dave Emerling. <laughs> Dave's always thinking about umpiring, which is great. I'm thinking about umpiring all the time, too. So um, he said, it occurred to me that the way um, umpires verbalize balls and strikes has evolved over the years, yeah, like most things, right? He said, when I first started umpiring, it was considered wrong to verbalize balls. We were expected to only call strikes. Silence on the part of the umpire meant it was not a strike and therefore a ball. Then we started verbalizing each part as a ball or each pitch, sorry, as a ball or a strike. Uh, then it was noticed that some major league umpires were counting the pitches. Many of them, not all, were saying ball two, etc. Um, I've often been instructed just call them, don't count them. Or are both ways correct and it's just a matter of personal style. Then some major league umpires started describing the pitches. Many of them were now saying ball outside, something like that. I gave that a try two seasons ago, just experimenting, and I noticed a distinct reduction in complaint. One thing that it completely eliminated was the typical passive-aggressive tactic of the coach asking his catcher, Mikey, where was that pitch? As a way of communicating to the umpire that he disagreed with the call. I never call a pitch low or high because both dugouts can usually tell, even if they disagree, as to why the umpire called it a ball. I only call whether a pitch is inside or outside, and then... Only if it's very close. What are your opinions about verbalizing balls and strikes? Do you think some of these other techniques, like counting them, which I don't do, and describing, which I do now, are either right or wrong or just a matter of personal preference? I, I do think some of it's a matter of personal preference. Though, um, calling ball is should not be a personal preference. Everybody needs to call it either. You call it the pitch. You call it a ball or you call it a strike. Well, unless the guy swings. Okay. <laughs> then you can, you know, give your signal, hand signal. But, um, yeah, because I think that you call less strikes if you don't call a ball. That's the number one reason, right? Because it's a close pitch. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's right on the border there. It could go either way. It's like a you flip a coin, 50-50 kind of pitch. And you just don't say anything. And it's a ball. Man, if it's that close, we got to call it a strike, right? So it's like easy just to like call nothing. That's the easier way out. That's human nature. So you have to make a decision on each pitch. I call ball. I don't care if he throws it up by his eyeballs. I might say, I, I say under my breath, ball. I, I want to call every pitch. That's a ball. I might I might even, you know, be a little whatever, funny. It's not really that funny, I guess. I might, 
you know, like, especially in a lower-level game, the kid throws one, like, way outside, and the catcher's got no shot, nobody's on it, hits the backstop. That one's a little bit out. You know, I might say something like that, okay? But I'm going to call it in some way every time because that's what I was taught. And um, also, I, I expect myself to call every pitch, no matter where it is. So that's not a choice. Calling it ball two, ball one, something like that, that's a choice. I, I don't do that. Uh, because I don't want to say the wrong thing. I mean, I probably know that it's ball two or or strike two or something like that, but I just don't do that. I just call it ball or strike. I do that on every pitch. I don't really care what number it is. Um, that's not really important because I'll give the count if I need to and everybody will know what it is. But, um, yeah, so I think that's a choice. I, I don't think there's any problem doing it either way. I see guys do it. I don't have a problem when guys do it. Sometimes it looks really good when they do it, you know. Um, so that's fine. Um, calling the pitch, like the location, like that's out, that's in or something along those lines. I, I do that. Yes. Um, and I started doing that a few years ago myself. Um, and I do agree, Dave, that it, it cuts down on, uh, coaches questioning things, um, because it might be a close pitch and you're like, that's in or ball. I got that in or something. You might say something just loud enough that the catcher can hear it, or maybe some other players might hear it or something like that on a close one. If you do that, then they know why you called it. You thought it was in. They can disagree still. They can think that it got the plate. But they know you thought that it was in or it was out, and that is why you called it a ball. Okay. You know, and, and they can't really argue with that. I mean, you know, it's not like that you miss it because that's really the thing they hate the most. It's like it's a nail-cutter pitch, and then you don't call anything. That's the problem, again, with not calling ball. And you just kind of left it there. And it could have been a strike. Or it could have been a ball, or maybe you just missed it, and you just didn't get a good view of it, or something. I don't know what. You got blocked out, or you, your brain wasn't working real well at that s split second or something, and then you missed a strike for them. They just want to know that you called it one way or another, okay? Um, and you're right on the high and low. They can see that stuff, so you don't have to say that. Nobody really should say that. They know if it's up or down, all right? Um, sometimes, though, a catcher, you know, might think, because, you know, he's got a similar view to you where he's catching it. And, you know, I've, I've said it. I've got that down just a little bit, you know. And uh, maybe nobody else said anything, but, you know, he might think that, it, oh, man, I, I thought I maybe got that. Maybe I stuck that one. And then you just tell him, you know, just off a little bit there, you know. I, I got it close, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of what my opinions are on that. Um, I think it's fine to um, – I, I think you should verbalize both balls and strikes all the time um, if you're calling them. Um, um, you know, like you, you don't need to verbalize a swinging strike. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you should always verbalize balls. Do you think, um, you say these other techniques about accounting them? That's up to you. I don't do it, but you know, whatever. I, I'm fine either way. And, um, as far as, um, location in and out, I, I think that's fine to a point. I mean, you don't want to overdo it, you know, and I think that's, it is a good rule of thumb. This just on some close ones, you know, um, and sometimes I think it's useful when a, when a catcher, you know, well, like uh, on the previous uh, segment I had there on, um, you know, giving a pitcher a pitch, you know, when they stick the glove. Well, if that catcher sits outside and he's in the batter's box and he sticks it, I'm like, that's out. <laughs> I'm going to say that too. Like, hey, people, you know, you can sit there and set up in the other batter's box on the other side of the plate and stick it. I'm just going to tell you it's out. It's in the batter's box. And I'll say that too if they get, hey, it's in the batter's box. The pitch is in the box. And that calm pitch is in the other box, you know. That's not a strike. 
So, you know, throw it over the plate. And that's that's the rules, right? So, there you go. That's kind of the way I handle that. Hopefully that uh, answers your question, Dave. And uh, another good question. Thanks, man. In my previous episode, uh, Scott Ordaway had a question about strike zones and calling pitches and such, which I answered. And if you didn't catch that, feel free to check out that episode. He had a follow-up email that he sent to me, and it read, In the last episode, you answered a question on strike zone. I have a follow-up question. If a pitcher hits his target and the ball is off the plate, are you supposed to reward him and call that pitch a strike? I'm thinking for high school ball. Also, even though it was my first season last year, I did uh, I did a few lower-level varsity games because scheduling was so difficult. I didn't feel like I was in over my head for the most part. Of course, it varies from umpire to umpire, but about how much experience would you think I should have under my belt to feel ready to do varsity games consistently? I don't want to rush the process and get overwhelmed, which is definitely very good. You don't want to uh, burn yourself out and... And then not want to do this anymore. I mean, that happens to guys. Um, let's go with that one first. You know, the second part there. I guess it all depends on the level that is in your area. You know, if, uh, for example, if you work varsity baseball in the uh, in the upper upper Michigan here, maybe in the UP or the upper part of the Lower Peninsula where this is not very populated and there's not a whole lot of baseball going on and it's only so good. Well, varsity ball up there is different than varsity ball, you know, in, in Grand Rapids where I live, where it's a highly populated area or other parts of the country for that matter, right? So um, then I think you might need a little bit more seasoning, right? And maybe you can work some sub-varsity games to get yourself there. But it all depends on how you take it. I mean, I think it's whatever your assigner thinks you're ready for. If they, if, you know, sometimes they do get desperate. I, I understand that. I've, I've been in those situations too where you... Um, you, you just have one guy available and you just hope he can handle it, <laughs> you know, and, and he's not too far over his head or something like that. I mean, sometimes that, that definitely happened last year in the pandemic season for sure. Um, but if you feel like you're pretty comfortable uh, with the kind of ball that, you know, is probably typical varsity baseball in your area, then um, I think you're okay to get a few more. Um, and I think that that's not pushing the envelope a little bit too much. And um, especially if you, you know, get good feedback from your partners that you work with or from your assigner or others, um, I think that that's, that can be a good thing um, to, you know, step up the level a little bit. Uh, when you're working, you know, say freshman and JV ball, you know, it can be kind of tough sometimes. Sometimes it's tough for those kids to throw strikes and it's hard for you to get a rhythm and, and get better at what you're doing, you know, calling balls and strikes or or there's crazy plays. And sometimes it's good with all the crazy plays that they have going on on the bases because it makes you uh, do your mechanics properly so that you're ready for any craziness that happens out there so that when you move up and the baseball is a little bit more predictable, which is the thing that really happens that makes things easier. It's not like I know all of you out there that um, maybe you know, are just kind of newer. You think, oh, well, it's, they say it's easier at the higher the level. Yeah, in some ways it is. And the reason it's easier is because it's predictable. It's predictable that more guys are going to throw strikes or be around the plate, and you're going to have good catchers that can catch them, <laughs> okay, and present them well more often than not. There's still bad catchers at even the major league level that I see. 
Um, there's more, they're more likely to make plays on the field. They're going to field ground balls and throw guys out and catch the ball and do the things they should do. Now, they're going to screw up every once in a while, so you've got to have your mechanics down and, and you've got to be doing things the right way so that when that happens, you're not surprised because that's the worst thing that we can have out there, right? But that's what makes it easier. They are throwing harder and hitting it farther and have more range out in the field and all those kind of things too, but you can trust that more often than not they're going to do those things. All right, so I'd say you kind of go for it, man. You know, if you can move up a little bit quicker. I mean, sometimes, you know, we used to have a signer here that wouldn't want to give guys varsity gains for like five years. Well, that, that's kind of silly, I think, you know, because there's guys that are ready to get varsity games after one, two years, you know. Some guys are just a little more skilled with it all, just like anything. Okay, so rewarding pitchers for hitting their target off the plate. My uh, gut feeling is no, you don't. Because, you know, if they're a smart team, they're going to keep moving out there. And pretty soon you got your catcher setting up in the middle of the other batter's box on the outside corner. And then he hits his target. And what, you're calling that a strike that's like literally 12 inches outside? No, we're not doing that. I don't care if he hits the glove that's off the target. You'll see guys do that. Oh, well, he hit, the glove didn't move. Well, it didn't move, but it was, you know, in the batter's box. <laughs> I mean, that's make it a strike. So it's got to be over the plate. We have a definition of our strike zone and all of the real books that we use for whatever level you use, and that's a strike zone. Now, if you're giving a little bit there in the gutters, and when I say that, of course, I mean, you know, between the batter's box and the plate, especially in certain games where it's hard to get some strikes, that's fine. I understand that. But uh, even high school games, man, I mean, guys got to try to throw the ball over the plate within the confines of the strike zone for that level. All right, you might scoot a little bit off plate between the batter's box and the and the the plate. Um, that's about as far as you can go, I'd say. You know, you don't want to even be really calling down the batter's box line unless it's just ridiculous. All right, um, but definitely nothing inside the batter's box, and I don't care where the kid sets up. Now there are times where you know, like I have a if a kid's crowding the plate. He's like, his toes are right on the line, which legally he's able to do. But, man, he's almost leaning his elbow or something in the strike zone. And then the catcher's setting up inside, and you're kind of blocked out a little bit. And they throw one in, and it hits the catcher's glove right there. And it looks, you know, from your angle, like he's pretty much set up on the inside corner. But you can't see it 100% clearly, but you got a pretty good feel for it. I usually get that one. It, might have, it could even be in the gutter or maybe a little bit on the batter's box line. But if that guy's jamming himself up on the plate and everybody's, you know, the, to me I blame the hitter more for that, for jamming himself inside so much. It's like, and if you sit on top of the plate, I guess you want inside pitcher. So if they throw one in there and it's pretty close, and I'm going to get that first strike if, if I can, all right? Um, because, you know, you're blocking me out. That's about the only time where I might give a little more leeway on that if they um, – if they hit their spot, all right, if they just drill it right in there. Hopefully that answers your question, Scott. Um, so I guess my general idea for rewarding him is that, you know, you, you reward guys for throwing strikes, you know. Um, okay, do you want to reward him if the catcher sets up inside and then he misses it 17 inches and hits the outside corner and the catcher reaches right across his body, but it is a strike, it's in the strike zone? If it's a, a crummy game, that for a strike. If it's a higher level game and guys are throwing a lot of strikes and he misses a spot by that much, 
Uh, you might ball that. I mean, it's all up to you. It, it all depends on you. Got to have a feel for the situation, I guess. All right, but you just want to get legit straights. It, it's hard enough to figure out what to call up there. I, mean, I guess I'm not smart enough to figure out what to call. Okay, I just call what's the strike zone. <laughs> That's it. I don't reward guys for anything else. You know. Um, yeah, are there times where there might be a pitch that's a you know a little bit off the plate slightly, you know, maybe it got a, just a nick of a seam on there, and I give him a whole ball off of the plate there, which is basically almost getting close to the the whole gutter. Yeah, if he's hitting spots consistently, you're going to get that. But um, if it's a struggle, man, you know, I don't know. It's it, you can't be this you know searching and hunting pitches and stuff, and then they're going to get people on you. I mean, it's not your fault the kid can't throw strikes. All right. That's what I got for you. Hopefully that helps you out a little bit. And um, I'd appreciate any feedback from anybody out there if you have some differing opinions or even if you agree with me. Had a very interesting question from listener of the show, Dave Emerling of Memphis, Tennessee. He uh, was asking about B and C position, deep B and deep C position, uh, when you're working three and four man mechanics. His uh, email reads, In many explanations of three man and four man mechanics with a runner on first, it gives the umpire the choice of positioning at either B or C for the call at second, whichever the umpire is more comfortable with. It seems there is a consensus that B is better. Guys claim they can see the player better when R1 steals second. I've never understood why that is. I much prefer C. We always say that angle is much better than distance. Well, distance isn't going to be a problem on this play, but angle is. From C, it seems the umpire has a right angle view of the play, by far the best angle. He's going to clearly see the tag from the B position. There exists the possibility that the runner will be between the umpire and the tag and block him out. Do you have any opinions on this? Just curious. Well, Dave, I certainly do have some opinions on this, and I'll share what I think. And I'm definitely curious if others out there have some opinions, so I would love for others to chime in on this in whatever way works for you, whether that be through email or something via social media or leaving a um, a message uh, through the Anchor app. That'd be great. Like you can do 60 seconds to tell what you think. So I posed this question on um, my local umpire Facebook group, Grand Grand Rapids Umpire Alliance. Um, Because I know some people on there that I work with that I respect their opinions. And I I put it on there. I said, uh, when working three-man or four-man and the situation allows for an umpire's preference, CCA manual. That's what we're talking about for the college stuff. Do you prefer deep B position or deep C position? And I said, I had a listener question for my podcast that asked about this. I know my preference, but I'm wondering about all of yours. Also, feel free to give your reasoning for your preference. All right. So I had a a poll. You could either vote for deep B or deep C. And then I had some people that gave a few um, comments. I had three comments on there. Now, Dave, I prefer B. All right. And some of the reasoning is within these comments, uh, but uh, I'll get to that in a second. So I had 15 votes, which is, you know, decent little sample size, I guess. 12 for deep B, 3 for deep C. And the comments, I had uh, 
Matowski, who's you know minor league umpire now and a D1 umpire who I've worked with on several occasions, good guy and, and a great umpire. He said, in my opinion, there's a lot more room to work the play on the B side, whereas C side, you're limited to adjusting with the play due to the throwing lane. And I would agree with Matt on that. Mike Delmont, um, another guy I've worked with, and a very good umpire, said, I like being able to see everything coming at me, runner, ball, fielder, ball, and C. From B, there is a better look at the back of the bag where most slides take place. And that is probably the number one reason why guys like working B there, okay? And then John Johnson also commented, he said, deep B, edge of the infield grass. I can see the back of the bag, and that's about where I am in a two-man two as well, so I'm more comfortable there. And I definitely agree with John. I, I feel more comfortable there because, like most of us, we, we work two-man and, and work in that B side when we're taking plays at second base, um, in just two men, you know, on steel plays, and even uh, frequently on double plays and force plays there as well. So I hope that I don't think Dave is under the conception that um, you just stay right where you're at when you're working deep B or deep C, because you you have to move in either spot to to get yourself your better angle and get yourself set. So you're coming, you know, left toward the toward the middle, maybe one or two big steps, depending on how big you are. I know, you know, I've worked with guys that are like six foot four, so maybe all they got to do is take one big step and get set, and they're right there, and they can see everything from B. But still, from C, I mean, maybe you don't have to move as much if you if you think, but you you can get blocked out if you're not moving. So you can't just like turn and take it right from that spot and not move. So I, I assume that's not what you're talking about. But um, so you do have to work to get your angle a little bit there. I mean, the reason you're in the deep B is because it's easier to work. You don't have to move as much as you would in regular B or C for that matter. But regular B where you really got to worry about that throw coming at you, you got to move quite a little bit there to get yourself in the best spot to see the play. So that was kind of the consensus there, Dave. Hopefully that kind of answers your question. I think it was a good one. Um, you know, I know there's some guys that really do prefer deep C and some very, very good umpires I know, like Mark Ewell, for example. I know he likes liked to work C when he was on the field which he's transitioned off the field now. Um, and he had his reasoning for that as well. Um, we get a lot more of the swipe tags and things like that now. So, I mean, you know, there's 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 reasonings for both of them, and that's why it is a choice. It's not like one is right or, or wrong. But um, I think that is why you see more guys working the DB. And I think that in um, umpire training, uh, most of the time when guys are taught three and four man, they are being taught to just kind of start there with uh, DB. All right. Um, any comments out there would be greatly appreciated. I'd be very interested to know what everybody thinks. I had a listener question from Robert Fobian, who's um, chimed into the show on several occasions over the past uh, few years here, which I always appreciate. And uh, he was responding back to, you know, me responding back to some of his things on, on the show in the last couple of episodes. Um, but anyway, he was watching the Little League World Series, and this is what he mentioned in his uh, message to me. He says, I've watched the Little League World Series every year since about 1980. Never disappoints, and this year was, again, no exception. As a native Michigander myself, I watched with immense pleasure as Taylor, Michigan, not only won the tournament, but, hey, look at that. They beat a team from Hamilton, Ohio, too. So, I mean, Michigan, Ohio kind of thing, of course. If you're from around here, you know what we're talking about. It's America's greatest interstate rivalry. Well... Some might disagree, but it is definitely right up there, right? Um, what were your thoughts on this year's Little League World Series? Anything of interest in regards to the umpires add to umpiring items? Um, so 
first, I didn't watch a whole lot of the Little League World Series. I watched some, uh, but I wasn't like intently watching all the time. I, I do that more with the College World Series. I watch almost every game, or I watch it on on um, delay, or stream it, or or watch it, you know, at some point. So I can't say that I, I watched a lot. I see, I saw some people complaining about certain things with some of the guys out there, which I kind of irritates me when people start doing that on different forums and such and, and on social media. I'm not saying Robert's doing that, but I saw some other people mentioning a few things here and there. But anyway, here are the two things that uh, Robert mentioned. In an early round game between Washington and Texas, the Washington pitcher uh, was doing a lot of strange things with his delivery. Sometimes he had long pauses. Sometimes he had shoulder shimmies in the middle of his delivery. Sometimes he had shoulder shimmies before the start of his delivery. And other times he was uh, quick pitching the hitters. Despite all of this being illegal under Little League Rule 8.05, none of this was being called. Kevin, any idea why this wasn't being called? Well, I really don't. But I bet that um, when they have their umpire meeting, you know, with all the umpires that are working that Little League World Series, they want to call them pretty straight up. And they, they, they probably don't want a whole lot of box called unless it's really obvious. I bet you that's the case. Now, of course, the thing with Little League is it's it's not – okay, it's baseball. I understand. But it's not really real baseball, <laughs> okay, because they can't lead off and the bases are so short and the mound's so short and the kids really should be playing from a farther distance and the fences are so short and all that stuff. I mean, there's so many variables that are unbaseball-like in there, and I know that's the rules that they have. Um, so, you know, a guy – Balking when a guy, kid can't even lead off? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's like <laughs> there's some things that just aren't quite the same there, I, I guess. Um, so I, I bet you that there was some kind of directive to not call that many balks. That's what I'm guessing. But I could be completely wrong. That That is my initial reaction to that. Um, the shoulder shimmy inside the delivery? I don't have as much a problem with that. Before the delivery? Yeah, that sounds like a balk to me. Maybe they missed it. Um, um, if you're changing your, de- your delivery method and your, you know, pauses and going long or short, that's okay. You know I mean? Nobody says you got to deliver it exactly the same way every time, but if it's deceiving the runner, uh, with those kind of shimmies, if a guy is potentially a, a base stealer or even if they're not, I guess, but, um, maybe they should be calling that. I, I don't know for sure, but I know these guys are amateurs and they're doing the best they can and they're probably going to go out and miss a few things. Um, I mean, shoot, man, we watched the Cows World Series, and there's some great umpires in there, and they miss some things, too. Then again, we watch Major League umpires, and we know they miss things. So, yeah, that, that's the stuff that happens. Number two, he says, on Thursday, the temperature on the field was like 103 degrees. At one point, the plate umpire went down on one knee, was attended to by medical staff, and was replaced. Also of note, coaches were bringing water onto, onto the field to the players. It was so hot. So he says, yeah, he knows that uh, ESPN paid like $30 million for the League World Series. It gives them content during a time where maybe there's not a lot else going on. And they do a great service to the league because a lot of kids watch the game and, and find interest in baseball and, and hopefully uh, play baseball, right? Um, but he says, when is it too hot to play a 12U game uh, for the umpires and for the players? I don't know. I mean, there's the, they have those things with the heat index. Um, I know they do that in the state of Michigan, which you might be familiar with, with MHSAA. And I know they do this in other states. And if the heat index and all these calculations get to a certain level, you're not supposed to practice or um, 
compete in a game that's outside. Um, and it's probably uh, close to that at that at that point. So um, I'm not real sure uh, what they were thinking, but I know they want to get that game in. It seems like maybe it was a little unsafe and maybe they're pushing the envelope because it is on national television and all that kind of stuff. And they, I know they had some rain problems in other situations. So maybe they were pushing it a bit. Um, seems like that might be the, um, might be the case. Seems a little, maybe a little irresponsible on their part, but hey, you know, they're the ones making the, the decisions, right? Um, then he had another question about, uh, you know, we know there's personal risks in umpire, particularly when you are working the plate and uh, you have a chance to get a concussion or other types of injuries. Um, so he talked about face masks and uh, taking a shot off the mask. And, and um, he mentioned one situation where he was using a, an all-star FM Magnesium 4000. And he's been very pleased with that. And a few weeks ago, he took a, uh, a shot. Um, during an 18U game, directly off his mask, and it did not glance one bit. It, you know, he, he came off F1's hand, went right to F2's mitt, straight to the mask, dropped at his feet, and there was no additional action because the runners, you know, weren't moving up or whatever, and he called time, walked over to the water jug with a towel, and he wiped his face and head and uh, had a drink, tilted his head back and got a full view of the stadium lights because it was a night game, which hurt his eyes, and then his partner came over, and they chatted a bit, and it was, you know, late in the game. Score was lopsided, and uh, his partner's like, how about you sit out? So uh, they're working two men, so he, he, he was, you know, his partner was a crew chief. Um, so he did what he, he told him to, and he finished the half, uh, the top of the inning solo. I don't know what he did, if he did it with behind the mound or whatever. It doesn't really matter. And after sitting there for about 30 minutes, um, didn't have any additional pain, um, and the lights, you know, pain looking in the lights, and he was feeling okay. And um, he had another game to work that night. Um, he thinks he, if he did have another game, he thinks he could have done it. But the question is, um, other than a partner telling you to grab a seat, what are some things we as umpires can do to mentally check ourselves to know if we could should take ourselves out? And also, when we wear pitches anywhere, you know, face, torso, groin, legs, whatever, what can we do mentally to reset ourselves to get back into that slot and call the next pitch without flinching, which sometimes that's tough, man. Uh, finally, is it appropriate or professional to address the catcher if he's repeatedly missing pitches, causing you to wear them? Yes. <laughs> okay, there's no doubt about that. I know the level matters, but yes, it is. Okay, especially when he's not really doing his job blocking them and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I know a lot of umpires do that, and I don't think that's a problem. And if a coach has a problem with that, then you just say, hey, this is about my safety back here. You know, I need somebody that can do the job back here. I mean, because, you know, whatever. You know, so if a coach starts coming at you about that, man, that's it's going to be a short conversation. He's either going to stop it and get somebody back there who can or tell the guy that's back there to do it, or um, the coach is going to have a short night, okay, because we're not talking about somebody's safety, right? Um yeah, I, I think, you know, you get one off the arm, you get one off the leg, whatever, something like that. Um, you know, you just got to tell yourself, too, that you know it's just going to hurt for a little bit, a few minutes, maybe five minutes or less, usually. And that sting goes away. You're kind of irritated, but you can get back in there, and you just got to really lock in and stay in there longer than you normally would just to get yourself so you're not flinching. Um, you know, if, you, you know certain con concussion protocols and such things. If you... Um, you know, feeling lightheaded, dizzy, um, you know, you're kind of out of it or something like that, you you know, after you take a shot off your mask or something, 
then you know that you might be in that situation where it could be a concussion kind of situation and you need to tell your partner or the medical staff if they're there or the, the coaches or something that you're not feeling good. Do you have to admit that that's the case and maybe there's somebody there that can take a look at you or something like that? Um, because that is serious and you certainly don't want to get hit again and cause yourself some serious damage. I don't care what game you're working, that's certainly not worth it. So you just have to maybe look up the uh, protocols and uh, see what, um, you know, what kind of symptoms you might have that are fitting into that. So look up, you know, what kind of symptoms you have if you have a concussion. And I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, um, and I'm not going to tell you what those are because I want you to look them up on your own. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to diagnose it, but you, you kind of know what that is, right? So if you're feeling that way, you've got to let somebody know. That's the first situation. Hey, I don't know, man. I'm feeling a little bit woozy here. I'm a, I'm a little bit out of it here. I don't know. Because, you know, a lot of times partners will come in, hey, are you okay? And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm okay. Sometimes you are, man. You get one. Your mask works well. Uh, you know, I like my mask. I've got my Force 3 mask, and I, I love my Force 3's uh, equipment and the mask that I've had. And um, it does a good job. It saved me from some concussions, I think. But still, sometimes you take a shot, and, you know, it. it's just like kind of taking a taking a shot in a boxing match or something and it kind of throws you back there for a second um and i think you you know if you feel like you can move on if you can call pitches and that's the question you ask yourself hey can i call pitches now if you're thinking i don't know okay if you're thinking i don't know then you've got to take a break here and see what the situation is all right and if you got to come out you got to come out all right i've never had somebody leave for a concussion in the game i've been working i've had guys leave in the first team because they broke their arm on a foul ball (laughs) And then I had to go back there and stick it after I just worked the front end of a doubleheader. <laughs> but, uh, but hey, what are we going to do? No, dude, work the rest of the game with a broken arm, you know. I don't want to stick it again. I'm like, all right, you got to go to the hospital or whatever you got to do. Get that thing set, and I'll just work this thing. And I called my signer, and he ended up coming over himself to work the bases for me. But I had to work on eating here, so it was a college game uh, by myself. Do, I was just like, hey, coaches, I'm going to do the best I can. I'll hustle out and try to see it, but it is what it is, you know. And, um, so yeah, you just kind of go with it and make sure your safety comes first on these kind of situations. Hopefully that answers your, your question, Robert. Thanks. So I got a listener question from Dave Emberling titled, don't call what you don't see. And it reads, uh, I think we've all heard this over the years. You even used the phrase on one of your recent podcasts, which I which he seems to enjoy because he writes me lots of uh, messages, which I really appreciate, Dave. He said, I, I had an instance this past summer where I really didn't have a choice to call what I didn't see. So here is the situation. Runner on second, less than two outs. I'm working two-man. He's the base umpire. Ground ball to second base who checks the runner and throws it first. He makes a call at first, which is an out. And then R2 uh, unwisely breaks for third. First baseman throws across the diamond to the third baseman, who's standing about five feet in front of the bag towards second base. R2 is going to be out by a mile. Third baseman's just waiting for him. He comes in standing up and collides with the fielder, who's holding the ball with both hands at about chest level as R2 runs into him. Chest to chest, nothing flagrant, not malicious. Neither player falls to the ground. I'm looking at R2's back, and they collide. Inexplicably, the collision causes... Um, Third baseman's glove to fall to the ground, yet he's holding the ball in his hand. Did I see the tag? No. Third base coach immediately says he tagged him with his glove with the ball in his hand. 
and just prior to the collision, the ball was in his hand, which was inside his glove. It was a two-hand attack. Again, I didn't explicitly see the tag, but it would have been virtually impossible for the runner not to have made contact with the fielder's glove. It fell off. I'd uh, use common sense as to what must have happened. I can't imagine calling him safe because I didn't see the tag. To me, this is just a limitation of the two-umpire system where sometimes you have to call what must have happened even though you may not have actually seen it happen. I asked my partner what he saw, and he agreed with me. I've had coaches say, how can you call that from over there before in different situations? If they persist, I sometimes tell them, if you don't want me to call it from over there, pay for more umpires. Opinions on that. Well, I'll answer that one first, I guess. Um, yeah, I agree with you. You know, <laughs> If they want better angles and all that kind of stuff, they can pay for more umpires. That's really, you really should only use that at the, as a last resort in a, in a situation if somebody's really getting on it. But um, it doesn't really do you much good to say that. I mean, that's true. We just got to work for our, the best angles we can do and call the best we, best you know plays that we can we can call, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's tough. I mean, that's only going to get you in a little hot water potentially. You know, somebody, it might come back at you. So I don't know. You're, you're right. <laughs> pay for more umpires you are 100% right I agree with you and I think every umpire out there would agree with you but I don't know if that really helps you and it doesn't help you with the coach and it could come back at you alright let's talk about this play first of all what did you see you saw a fielder with a ball standing there ready to tag somebody and a runner run into him alright did he give himself up did, did he try to slide no did he try to avoid him? No. Nope, he just tried to run through him. Now, I know you say it isn't flagrant or malicious or anything, but is this interference? Yes. Yes, it is. He ran into him. Now, he ran into him for one of two reasons. Either he's a dumb player and doesn't know any better and thinks he's got to run straight at the bag or something, which he might be. There's plenty of those out there. We know that. Or he's trying to run into him in such a way that he hopes he does drop the ball and that he ends up being safe. Either one is not acceptable. Ignorance does not excuse you if you don't know that you should avoid him. And if you are trying to run into him, then you interfered with him and you are out. All right? So, therefore, you should call him out. So, this coach can argue all he wants about, oh, he had the ball here or there or it wasn't in his glove or whatever. But he interfered with his ability to make the play on him by running into him. All right? So, therefore, he's out right away. And you didn't even have to see the tag. The second thing is here, um, I, I obviously, I didn't see this. But I, I want you to ask yourself and replay in your mind, where could you have been to see it better? Now, I know there's always situations, and you're right, in two-man where you, you, it's always angle over distance, and you can't see things the best you can if you had three or four umpires out there. But I know if I'm taking this play, I'm in, I'm in C. There's ground ball there. Even if it's just routine one, I'm taking a couple quick steps toward the middle of the diamond toward first base up toward the working area, getting an angle there, seeing that, getting myself set, seeing that he, you know, makes a throw, it's a good throw, he's out, first baseman catches it, and then I'm taking a couple of quick steps back across the back of the mound in the working area and getting my angle at third. Whether he's going to go there or not, I know I'm coming across there because I'm always anticipating that there might be another play because that's my only other responsibility. And if I did that, I feel like if he was five feet toward shortstop, and I was where I would like to be, I think I would have a pretty solid view of it. I'd have a good angle, 
I wouldn't be close, but again, that's what it is in two-man, right? And I feel like I could see maybe even part of the front of the glove. I, th I think I could see that. So if you were more stationary, you just kind of stayed in C, then you're not moving correctly. So you probably need to um, reevaluate that because that's what I always do in those situations. And believe me, I've done such such things before. I know sometimes it can be a little quick, but on that, man, you have time to move. I know you, I, I, I'm pretty sure you do. And you have to think, where could I have been to have seen that play better? That's what I always do whenever I have a weird play or I'm looking up somebody's rear end or something like that. And I always ask myself what I could have done to try to get a better spot to see that play. Now, sometimes the answer is nothing, right? And two men, you did what you could, and that's just the way it ended up. But frequently, there is something you could have done a little bit better. You could have been a little more this way or that way. You could have reacted to the ball a little bit better. Um, you could have fought for a little bit better position. Even a couple of steps makes a big difference. We know that. So I think that's the thing you got to think about. And only you really know that because you, you know how the play ended up. But I'm thinking that if you think about it, that you will decide that, yeah, I probably could have gotten a little bit better position. But none, nonetheless, on this play, uh, it's kind of a mute point because he interfered with him. All right? I mean, you can't just go run into somebody that's trying to tag you. All right? And hoping that they drop the ball or whatever. And it, it doesn't, you know, the baseline, it's not like your baseline, yeah, it's established, I guess, but... The guy's got the ball and he's making a play on you. You can't try to interfere with his ability to make that play on you. you know, you've got to get out of the way. All right, so hopefully that answers your question. Once again, thanks for that question. And um, you always come up with some interesting stuff. I appreciate it. got some listener feedback that they would like me to add in some of the quizzes that I've done in the past. I haven't done those recently. And so I decided, yeah, you know, that, that seems like a good idea. And as we enter the off season, it's a good time to uh, be thinking about rules and mechanics and other types of things. And eventually we'll be getting to those, to those new quizzes that will be coming out and tests that we have. So I've got a, a high school-based, you know, a federation-based uh, little quiz for you here. And um, I'll, you know, read the question as I normally do, give you some choices, and, uh, and then, of course, just give you the correct answer. But in your mind, try to see if you can uh, pick the correct answer before I give it to you. That's really the goal. So uh, on a potential tag play between home and first, the batter runner retreats toward home to evade a tag. A, he shall be declared out if he touches or passes home. B, he shall be declared out if he leaves the baseline. C, the ball remains alive. Or D, all of the above answers are true. What do you got on that one? Well, if you said that all of the above answers are true, you are correct. All right. So, yep, live ball. Um, you know, if he leaves the baseline to avoid something, of course, he's going to be out. And he can run back and forth between first and home as long as he doesn't touch or pass home plate. All right. So there's our first one there. Okay. Second one. The visiting pitcher walks the first batter in the bottom of the sixth inning. There have been no previous conferences. The pitching coach makes a trip to that pitcher. After the trip, the head coach of the home team puts in a pinch hitter. 
The visiting head coach comes out of the dugout to make a second trip and replace the pitcher. A. Warn the head coach that he cannot make a second trip. If he continues, he is ejected, but the pitcher may remain in the game with no penalty. B. Allow a trip, but the substitution is not necessary. C. Warn the head coach that he cannot make a second trip. If he continues, he's ejected, and the pitcher will be substituted after he completes the at-bat. Or D. Allow the trip, and the substitution is mandatory. What do you got on that? Remember, it's high school rules, you know, Federation Rule 341 to be specific. And the correct answer was B, allow the trip, but the substitution is not necessary. All right. Next one. Um, with a runner on first base, no outs, and a 1-0 count on the batter, the pitcher fails to come to a complete stop and is called for a balk. His pitch is wild and eludes the catcher, going all the way to the backstop. The runner attempts to advance to third, and he's thrown out. What do you got? Remember, this is high school rules, right? So uh, we have A, batter, and all runners do not advance at least one base. Return the runner to second base. Or B, the play on the runner stands and he's out. The balk is still acknowledged, and the count remains 1-0 on the batter. Or C, immediately call time when the pitcher balks. And this is um, Federation Rule 511K. If you said C, you are correct. Immediately call time when the pitcher balks. Now, if this were um, professional rules or NCAA rules, uh, B would have been the correct answer, right? All right, moving on. Fourth one. The batter hits a deep and high fly ball into the right field corner. The right fielder gets under the ball at the fence near the foul pole and standing in foul territory. The right fielder jumps and touches the ball with his glove while the ball is over fair territory. The ball deflects off his glove and travels over the fence on the foul side of the foul pole. We got A, home run. Ball was fair, traveled to the fence in flight. B, foul ball. The fielder was in foul territory when he touched the ball and the ball was foul when, he, when it went over the fence. Or C, two-base award, the ball was fair, but traveled over the fence over foul territory. What do you got there? Remember, this is um, Federation, of course. So C was correct. Two-base award, the ball was fair, but traveled over the fence over foul territory. Be like if it, you know, skipped down the line, jumped over a fence or something, right? Okay, a little bit, slightly tricky. Remember, it doesn't matter where his feet is. It matters where the ball is when it, you know, is touched, if it's fair or foul. Number five, with the bases loaded and two outs in the bottom of the last inning, the score is tied. The ninth hitter is hit by the pitch and is awarded first base. The, the you know the runner the runner three legally touches home and scores, and B nine legally advances to and touches first. R two started toward third but went to join the celebration near first before he touched third. The umpire should what a Call the uh, runner out, R2 out, for making a travesty of the game and continue the game. B, declare the game over. The run scores as only B9 needed to go to first and R3 to touch home. Uh, C, call R2 out for abandoning his effort to run the bases and continue the game. Or D, call R2 out if the defense properly appeals third base 
and continue the game. What do you got on that one? Well, if you said D, you are correct. You call R2 out if the defense properly appeals third base and continue the game. That would be high school, you know, Federation Rule 911 and then note two if you want to look it up. All right. Sixth one we got. We've got the pitcher throws the first to attempt to pick off. The first baseman drops to his knee to block the entire base before catching the ball and attempting to tag the runner. Do you have A, obstructing a base only applies to plays at the plate? B, if obstruction is called, R1 is awarded first base. C, first baseman may not block the entire base until he clearly possesses the ball on a pickoff. Or do you have D, first baseman may block the entire base before possessing the ball as long as he is in the immediate act of fielding the throw? If you said C, you are correct. First baseman may not block the entire base until he clearly possesses the ball on a pickoff play. Um, and also, you know, sometimes people, oh, well, he just is awarded first. Well, if you, you get awarded another base, I mean, there's a penalty for that, right? You get second base. Because if that were the case, first baseman would block the base all the time because all the guy's going to get is first base. I mean, what would be the penalty, right? So, um, and it, it applies to all bases. You, you have to have possession of the ball, right? So that's uh, Federation Rule 222.3 and also 832 Situation G. All right. Seventh one we've got here. In the fifth inning, the head coach changes pitchers and replaces Jones with Smith. The team used a charge conference on defense in the second inning. Smith's first two pitches are wild, and the pitching coach comes out to talk to Smith to calm him down. So, what we got? A, eject the pitching coach immediately, and Smith is removed after he finishes pitching to one batter. B, warn the pitching coach that he cannot make another conference. If he continues, he's ejected, and the pitcher will be substituted for after he completes the at-bat. C, only allow the head coach to make the conference to the mound. Or D, allow the conference. What do you got here? And it's a little different for other things here. But if you said D, allow the conference, you are correct. And the uh, Fed rule for that is 341. All right. Number eight. With the runner on first base and no outs, batter is interfered with by the catcher but hits a single to right field. The runner on first is thrown out attempting to advance to third. The offensive head coach informs the plate umpire he elects to take the catcher's obstruction instead of the result of the play. Here's your choices. A. Allow the catcher's obstruction ruling. Place R1 at second and award the batter first. B. The batter and all runners, other runners advance at least one base. The obstruction is ignored and the play stands. C. The ball becomes dead immediately with catcher's obstruction. The batter is awarded first and the runner is awarded second. Or D, allow the catcher's obstruction ruling. Place R1 at third and award B1 first. What do you got there? If you said B, you're correct. The batter and all other runners advance at least one base, so it's ignored and the play stands and he's out. So if you want to look that up, it's Federal 811E. All right. Moving on to number nine, um, with a uh, with R three on third base and one out, 
B3 swings, contacts the catcher's mitt, and hits a deep fly ball to right field. R3 tags up and scores. All right. So is it A, the ball is immediately dead on catcher's obstruction, and B3 is awarded first base, and R3 returns to third? Is it B, since the offense scored, play stands? Is it C, the umpire goes to the offensive coach and asks him whether he would like the obstruction enforced? B3 awarded first, R3 returns to third. Or the result of the play, B3 out, R3 scores. Or is it D, the umpire enforces the obstruction, B3 is awarded first, R3 returns to third. He or she will grant the offensive manager the result of the play if the manager requests such, but if uh, if he does not, um, but he does not offer the option. So what do you got there? If you pick C, you're correct. This is Rule 811E. The umpire goes to the offensive coach, asks him whether he would like the obstruction enforced or the result of the play. All right. So I guess we're we definitely getting some catcher's obstruction stuff going here. All right, 10th question. This will be the final one for, for this. I'll do some more in my next episode. Uh, with uh, R1 on first and R2 on second base and one out, B4 gets a base hit to the outfield. R2 is held up late by the third base coach as he rounds third trying to score. He slips as he tries to stop, contacts the third base coach, then gets up and scrambles back to third. The umpire judges the contact was accidental. All right, because he was just standing too close, I guess. Is it A, the coach did not physically assist the runner when the contact is accidental, the, the ball is alive and in play? B, the coach is guilty of physically assisting the runner. The ball is dead immediately and R2 is declared out. All of the runners return to the last legally touched base at the time of the interference. Is it C, the coach is guilty of physically assisting the runner? It is a delayed dead ball. After the play, R2 is cleared out, and the other runners remain at the bases they obtained during the play. Or is it D, the coach is guilty of physically assisting the runner, the ball is immediately uh, dead immediately, R2 is declared out, and other runners are awarded the base they would have obtained had interference not occurred. Um, so, what do you got there? Um, by the way, the rule is um, 3-2-2 and also 8 4-2-S. Uh, a is correct. The coach did not physically assist the runner when the contact is accidental and the ball is live and in play. And of course, that's a judgment call. All right. So there you go. There's a little 10-question quiz for you. I'll try to maybe get 10 more questions with some Fed rules uh, next week. And, and at some point, we'll work on some you know NCAA rules as well, because I know we've got a lot of college guys out there as well, or guys that do both. All right. So hopefully that uh, got you thinking a little bit, and uh, I'd appreciate any feedback on that or what you thought about any of those situations. So there you have it, the 47th installment of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. And I appreciate you sticking with me till the end of this one. I know that uh, my podcasts vary in length, sometimes, um, you know, 25, 30 minutes, sometimes I'm an hour plus, but this one is definitely on the longer end of things, but uh, that's because I got some good feedback uh, from some listeners out there, so I certainly urge all of you to do that and um, give me some information that, that you've got and some some things to think about and some potential segments that I can delve into. 
want to know what you are interested in and what you would like me to talk about. I mean, I always have my own ideas, but uh, I'm definitely up for uh, making it more interactive for those listeners out there. So I appreciate that. Any of the segments I've had, and I had several here, um, I would appreciate your feedback. You can uh, send me an email, spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. You can reach me at Twitter at, at Kevin R. Weber. Uh, you can reach the um, the Facebook page uh, for the podcast um, if you look at uh, the Hammer Podcast, at the Hammer Podcast. And you can always leave a voice message as well through the Anchor app. Um, 60 seconds or less, but man, you can say a lot in 60 seconds. I've got some fall collegiate games to wrap up my season that are coming up, and I'm sure in my next episode I'll mention a few things about those and what went well and Maybe what went wrong too, but hopefully nothing too awfully wrong goes um, in those games. Um, and if you guys are working some fall games, let me know how those are going for your, yourselves. And also, if you're attending a camp or clinic, let me know which ones you're attending and um, how that's going and what you maybe learned and what you thought about it. I'm going to be at the um, the Brewstone Senior uh, camp here coming up uh, the first weekend in October, October 1st, 2nd weekend there, uh, helping with the uh, the youth camp part, and uh, so I'll be there, so if any of you are attending uh, the Dome Camp, um, you know, check me out, I'll be there somewhere doing something, okay, <laughs> it's at several locations, but uh, I'm sure that we could run into each other, and uh, I'd appreciate, you know, a little feedback from you there, and just being able to talk to you and meet you if I haven't met you before. All right, until next time, keep calling strikes.